Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. I want to remind you, we're trying to make this podcast a little more interactive, and you can send me questions to rwebster at saint-lukes.com, rwebster at saint-lukes.com. And I'm really enjoying talking to you and answering your questions. I'll even try to incorporate these into future podcasts. And lately, we've been in places that are far from Israel or places where Jesus lived, like Capernaum or Galilee or even Jerusalem. Uh, We're places far away like Corinth or Philippi. But these places, too, have become the world of Jesus thanks to a visit by St. Paul in the year 51. So that's where we are these days. And in Philippi, we've learned that the letter to the Philippians is different because the circumstance is different and the town is different and the problems are different. But this morning, I also want to show you how the letter to the Philippians is different because it's a compilation. I mean, we've got two letters to the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, and then there were probably more. We only have one letter to the Philippian Christians, but it's really more than one. It's just pasted together. And I'll show you because if you were to read it flat, you can see that Paul changes theme uh, at least three times. So what we want to do this morning is look at a shift in his thought. Uh, and, and what I'm going to call this is a method or a corrective. Paul is trying to give his people an idea of good religion versus bad religion. What happens in the first chapter of Corinthians is Paul is watching the gospel bust out all over the place, and he's really happy about it. Uh, he, he's in prison, but he sees that his suffering is a witness or it is facilitating the spread of the gospel, so he doesn't care. Well, in Philippians chapter 3, he cares because not everybody is a good guy. So he's going to try to show them how to discern what is good and what is bad. And hey, I know about this. I'm a minister in the South, in Birmingham, Alabama, and there's a lot of religion around here. So sometimes you have to distinguish between good religion and bad religion as opposed to some religion and no religion. No, we're covered up in religion. It's just not all good. And like Harper Lee once famously said in To Kill a Mockingbird, sometimes a Bible in the hand of one man is as bad as a bottle in the hand of another. So Paul is offering um, eyes to see. Now, we're still going to have to dig because a lot of this stuff is sensitive to the world that they lived in. So we'll do that. Let me read Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, which is a break from the first letter to the second letter, if you will, and, and or the first idea to the second idea, and then so that we'll read it and we'll explain it. I'll go into the world. All right, so this is Philippians chapter 3, and I'm actually going to start with the second half of verse 1, which is where the break starts. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, for you as a safeguard. Beware the dogs. Beware the evildoers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I come to regard as loss because of Christ. 
More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow, therefore, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Well, let's go to the world and see if we can find out what Paul's saying here. Um, There is a little river right outside of Philippi where something very important happened. And it's the baptism of a woman named Lydia. She is the first recorded in Acts chapter 16. She's the first European convert to something that we would later call Christianity. Uh, She's an important person. She's a dealer in purple cloth, which was a high-end commodity. In effect, she was a high-end retailer. Purple cloth being very rare, uh, made from the ink of snail shells and only reserved for very wealthy people and royalty. I like to, to remind you this because Lydia, this first convert, was an influencer. She was a person who people would follow. Uh, The word would spread like wildfire, and Lydia would have an important part in establishing the church in Philippi. Still, lines were blurry then. Um, The question was this. Great, we've accepted Jesus Christ, this Jewish Messiah in a Jewish world, a Jewish milieu. How Jewish are we supposed to be? It was always tempting to try a little harder and add a little more uh, to their conversion. And Paul's answer to that question was something that he called the gospel. Now, I want to remind you of something that we've talked about in an earlier podcast. Gospel is a word that gets overused and thrown around, but for Paul, it meant three things, and you had to have all three. The first is grace. We are saved by grace, and it's a one-way gift. It is not earned. It is not deserved. We're simply given grace. Uh, we are not We are not good enough, and we our noses can't stay clean enough. This is not a deal that we strike with God, but rather we're loved because we are. Paul was saved by grace, and he had blood on his hands. Peter was saved by grace. He denied his best friend three times. So these two pillars of the early church were wounded leaders, if you will, who were healed and saved by grace. That's the first component. Second component is time. For God so loved the world, God entered his own creation in time to start a rescue operation so that we could see that we don't have to wait for heaven when we die. Heaven is under our noses. It's something that Jesus called the kingdom of God, and it's breaking out all over the place in our daily lives in time, being at the right place at the right time. Sunrise, the eyes of children, forgiveness. Uh, We can see drops of heaven everywhere, and we see it now. And then finally, the third. If we can live this way, it makes us a family. Jesus always said that the most important thing we can do is to love God and love each other. When his enemies tried to pin him down, to name the greatest law, he said there too. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It's about other people. So when you get these three, you've got the gospel, but you got to have all three. You see, if you only have two, if you drop one, you have a religion that's skewed. This is one way you can tell bad religion. Grace and family without time is a religion in our heads. It's separate. It's a cult. It's a group of people waiting for heaven, but not helping anybody else. Time and family without grace are social workers with no Jesus. Grace and time 
without family. You're all up in your head by yourself, not getting anything done. Now, that's one way that we can look at the gospel. You got to have these three and you can't drop one. In the case of Philippians chapter three, it's just as important to remember, you can't add to it either. You can't take the gospel plus anything. Now, the same thing happens in Paul's letter to the Galatians. In, the, in, in, in Galatia, they too were teaching that something needed to be added on to the gospel, just like Philippians 3. They were actually teaching that circumcision was an add-on to make the faith better. Now, no one can accuse Paul of not having passion. I mean, first of all, he says in Philippians 3, beware of the dogs. Well, Let's see if you'd like to be on the on the receiving end of his letter to the Galatians, especially in chapter 3. Check this out. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, you're ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well, then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by you doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Yeah, it's a problem. You don't add anything to the gospel, and Paul will let you know. The problem in Corinth was the same thing. They added rock star preachers to the gospel. They had the gospel in their heart, and then they thought they'd turn it into a special club with a rock star speaker. Uh, That was their problem. But we have our problems, too. If the Philippians and the Galatians and the Corinthians all do something wrong with their religion, I see at least two ways that we get it wrong around here, two kinds of Christian experience. One is when we turn our church experience into a self-help group or free therapy. In this case, I would say that's also a time and family distortion of the gospel uh, without grace. Another one is when we turn church into hell insurance or protection from cultural change or or, or an inoculation against culture. And I would call that the grace and family, uh, the grace and family perversion without time. The problem with both of these experiences of church is that they work well until they don't. People will always let us down. It might be a leader, it might be the institution, it might be within our own families or our own hearts. It might be that empty place that's not filled, that can only be filled by a full gospel. So in Philippians chapter 3, he adds a third experience, a third Christian experience, and the fullest experience of all. It was back in Philippians 3 chapter 7. I'll read it to you. Whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. There's no question Paul is being protective with them here. He wants them to know good religion. And why? Well, Philippi's out in the sticks. It's not like Corinth. It's not close to Rome. They're not sophisticated up there. They don't have quite the the depth of understanding out there. Maybe they don't even have the depth of education up there. And remember, Lydia was, was baptized in a river because they didn't have a synagogue and they didn't have a tradition outside of the Roman gods. And so we learn in Philippians 3 that evil workers were passing through and teaching them to add circumcision, and these evil workers were probably converts to Judaism. I can tell this by Paul's response, but um, but but let me say something about converts to anything. We all know something about converts. They were teaching circumcision because they were excited about it. They had experienced uh, something new and they wanted to share. I have my own story of conversion. 
for the first 18 years of my life, I was a Southern Baptist. I became an Episcopalian in college, and I had all the zeal of a convert. We, we know how this works. You can imagine a naturalized citizen, someone uh, taking the exam, if you will, from a place far away, and they're all excited about being U.S. citizens, and they can quote the preamble to the Constitution by heart, which is something that very few of us can do, but they're excited about it. When I became an Episcopalian, I loved doing Episcopal things. I, in my church, I, you could you could find me there every day, uh, leading the youth group, singing in the choir, on the vestry, volunteer uh, for anything uh, that might come my way. And then I go to seminary, and I'm a super Episcopalian because I want to be a super Episcopal priest. And I remember this first summer as a as a hospital chaplain intern, and all my buddies were able to wear a preacher collar, a clerical collar, except for me. In our diocese, they wouldn't let you do that until you finally had the certificate, and I was just in agony. I wanted to wear a collar and carry a prayer book and go from room to room and be uh, an ordained minister of the gospel, which I wasn't yet, and I remember one of my teachers who tried to beat this religion out of me repeatedly said, hey, Rich, why do you need a collar, and why do you need a prayer book? Why don't you just listen to people and pray? What my friend reminded me is what Paul is reminding us here is that the heart of good religion is relationship, not external forms. So it's here in Philippians 3 with this elegant play on words. He says, we are the circumcision, which simply means that circumcision is a badge of honor for those who are grandfathered in, who grew up Jewish, or or like Paul, or like Timothy, who are in town. Uh, They happen to be circumcised people, but they're not there to teach that. And so what he says is that, sure, they're the people of God, whether literally or figuratively as the circumcision, but there's something different. And in the Greek language, the words are very similar, but it's it's a remarkable play on words. They're not the circumcision, they're mutilators, which is an ugly word for an ugly perversion of religion. They've got bad religion. And it's here that Paul continues with his wordplay, with, with using the word flesh, meaning accomplishments, uh, a resume, if you will, also flesh, meaning what we do with our bodies. Both of these are incomplete and God is over all. Now, while we're talking about good religion, I'm going to take a break from Philippi and take you back to the world of Jesus to a festival that Hebrew people would celebrate uh, once every year. It was the third of the great festivals required uh, by their law to, to return to Jerusalem, and it's called the Festival of Sukkot. And Sukkot is very important because it involves a prayer for water so that it would rain over the winter and your crops would grow and you wouldn't die. It was also a thanksgiving for what God had done in the past while you were also petitioning for the future. Sukkot was also very, very near uh, the prayer of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is going to mean something in a minute. So very, um, very close to the end of the festival, some people bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And I'm going to read the story to you. And as we live in the world, we'll see if we can't see this in a new way. This is John chapter 8, beginning with the first verse. Then each of them went home. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might bring some charge to bring against him. 
And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go on your way. From now on, do not sin again. This story is powerful on its own, but if we know something about the world of Jesus, we can also solve a mystery, and the mystery is this. You ever wonder why what Jesus was writing in the dust or why? And I think we can find an answer. Okay, here's the backstory. First, there's, they're doing this to test Jesus, and it's a sham accusation. The law required, in the cases of adultery, both the man and the woman to appear before the judge and with eyewitnesses. So they don't have any of those things. They simply have the poor woman. But Jesus plays along to a point. Uh, the high priest in those days, that would be the judge in this matter, would write the names of the accused in the dust of the temple floor. So right away, Jesus is assuming the mantle of authority here. But still, there's more because at the end of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is, I think, five days between uh, that holiday and the required festival, a holy day that was so close to Sukkot that everyone knew the liturgy. On the final day, a prayer was said by the high priest that is a quotation of Jeremiah seventeen 13. I'll read it to you. A hope of Israel, O Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. All who turn away from you shall be recorded in the underworld, or it's also translated, all who turn away from you shall be recorded in the dirt, for they have forsaken the fountain of living water, says the Lord. They have forsaken the fountain of living water. Jesus is writing in the dirt because he's enacting a fulfillment of a dream from a long time ago. They turned away because they're fulfilling a dream that was promised by Jeremiah that they would walk away from living water, just as Jesus declared himself in John chapter 7 that he was living water. None of us are good enough. None of us have clean noses enough. We all need grace. We all need Jesus. Paul said as much here in his resume in Philippians chapter 3 as he's trying to show them good religion. His resume is flawless. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which means he's got blue blood. He's got a great education, a spotless record, and yet Christ is overall. For Paul, the whole world changed when God raised Jesus from the dead. When we give into the gospel fully, when we remember that Christ is before us and behind us and over us and next to us, uh, loving us and keeping us, scrubbing us up, picking us up, healing us when we hurt, drying every tear from every eye, giving us joy, inspiring us, living with us, and giving us each breath of every day. Our goal is simply this. Come what may, cost what it will, we want to live a life like Jesus and have a resurrection like Jesus. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus showed us how it all works. What we see in Philippi is that Paul is an accomplished man but he's discovered wisdom. So friends, I hope this has got you thinking about the difference between good religion and bad religion. I'll even leave us with a question. How's our religion doing these days? Well, thanks, friends. We'll see you next time.